outside the box of religious obligation lies a road less travelled into the heart of the Father's affection. Slinging freedom all over the place, this is the God I had a wonderful date with my wife yesterday. Okay, good. So it's my birthday on Tuesday, so the 27th. Happy birthday. Thank you. 38? 38, that's right. I'm in touch. We decided we were going to... I'm amazing. How did you know that, by the way? Uh, Word of knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) You saw it in a dream. I thought you were 37, so I went with 38, so... (laughs) So we actually, Jess and I decided to recreate our first date and do some fun things just with um, like some fashion stuff and then found a really great bistro to be able to go out to. And we went up to Billings, Montana, which is about an hour and a half from where we currently live, just to get a different restaurant and a different look. And it was absolutely wonderful. We had a great time. To recreate a first date, and and that went through like questions that we would ask on a first date, and circling oh, wow. back to that after 13 years of being married, and what does that look like, and just a lot of really fun dialogue that came up in the midst of it. It was a, it was a great time, and it honestly led to the best thing that I heard this week. Well, before we get to that, so you bit of you guys had a fashion show first, or what? So what we did was we we went out and. We picked out an outfit that we thought, like, if we were going to be having our first date again with each other, and we were planning on that first date, picking out an outfit to wear to that first date together. Did you do that for your first date? We did not. I was going to say, yeah, that would be rare. (laughs) What kind of outfit do we use for you tonight? (laughs) No, we didn't. It, It was us going back and saying, okay, what would this look like? And, you know, what what looks good to you now? And... So that was really fun. We were able to kind of dabble with that a little bit. And And did you wear those outfits out to the thing? We did. Kind of awkward, you know, because we literally like pulled the tags off of the things that we were wearing and like walked up to the counter and gave it to the lady and paid for them right there, uh, which was interesting. But it was great. It it was a blast. We had a lot of fun with it. That sounds fun. I proposed to Sarah at the very same restaurant where we had our first date. Really? Which no longer exists now. But (laughs) yeah, that was... (laughs) Two and a half years, three, yeah, two and a half years after our first date and went back there and ordered the same meal and now we can't do it. It's all gone. Hmm. You didn't want to buy it, buy out the restaurant and then circle back there someday? It was already gone before we knew. (laughs) (laughs) Office building in its place. No no one contacted us about it, but. uh, (laughs) How dare they? (laughs) Yeah, I like the conversation. That sounds really fun. Of course, Sarah and I are going to remember back 68 years. That's going to be. Oh, not quite that long. No, no, no. 50-ish years. Yeah, 48. How about that? Ah, man, I aged, aged ourselves appreciably there. Yes, you definitely tacked on a decade there. Yeah, I did. Well, I'm Wayne Jacobson. And I'm Kyle Rice. And welcome. So what's the best thing you heard this week? The best thing that I heard this week came from Jess, and we were just talking about our marriage and, and the attributes of our relationship that we both deeply appreciated. And her feedback was, I have never felt more safe in any relationship I've ever been in than our marriage. And that was pretty special. That was a big deal. Wow. That was a big deal. That is a big deal. Now, I guess I have to go with the best. I've changed the best thing I heard this week. Oh, okay. Why do you have to change it? <laughs> because of what you said sparks. I'm going, oh, yeah. Last week, 
Sarah comes out of uh, her therapy session last week, still dealing with some of the trauma stuff. And she said, guess what my therapist said to me today? And I said, what's that? She said, she told me that marrying Wayne was the best decision she ever made. Mm. Now, I went from being the cause of her PTSD <laughs> with one therapist an abusive husband Sarah needs to flee. So I'm like, I'm thinking I like this therapist better than the last one. <laughs> but I'm pretty much the same guy. And I went from, man, this is the best. is because she, she loves the way I've been walking with Sarah through this and things we share and say and all that. And every time I said, well, Wayne said this. She, goes, she finally said, you know, marrying him was the best decision you ever made. That was nice to get an upgrade from a therapist. <laughs> well, I guess for me, it was very humbling because... I know how many times I've screwed up and I know mm. the places that I haven't been safe or that I haven't been as kind and still to have her give me that feedback That's after true. that amount of time was, man, it was, that was much needed, especially with everything that we've been going through. And Jess and I have been navigating over the last, you know, three, four months, as far as with Eliana and then Jess has been going through a bunch of her own stuff that was just an incredible blessing, a great birthday gift, better than anything oh. else that we'd done. So, and really, particularly, and not just for traumatized people, but if your partner in marriage feels like you're the safest space they can be with these days, then you're doing something well. That that speaks yeah. to, I think, what a marriage ought to be, and finding a, a place where the each of you is safer with each other than any place else on the planet, and then that will serve you well. Obviously, yeah. Well, the best thing I heard this week before you sidetracked me was from <laughs> somebody sent me an audio recording of a podcast of some kind. This did not the, the this guy was a guest on the podcast, a guy named Jamie Winship, and we'll link the podcast down below if you want to pick it up on your own. And I've listened to it twice already because there's just mm. so much. This is a bridge builder in the world and uh, a, a believer, and he says a lot of really wonderful things. So I'm just going to pull one of them out. I could have, I've got a list of about 10 things here that uh, really touched me on this podcast that I'm exploring with some other folks. But here's the, here's the one thing he said real quick, real short, all negative emotion is an invitation to transformation. Ooh. Okay. My, my first gut re reaction to that guy, I think all negative emotion, <laughs> some of my negative emotions are justified because somebody has done me wrong or somebody's done this and done that. And then yeah. as you just dig down into what that really means is, no, I can't blame other people for my negative emotions or I can't put it on God because I think mostly when we get into the negative emotions, like we're unhappy or we're angry or we're frustrated, we've got something we want God to change and it's not mm -hmm. in here. It's out there somewhere, right? You got to fix yes. this, fix that. And to just be able to go every negative emotion, whether it's fear or anger or jealousy or what is an invitation for me to stand with the Holy Spirit and go, I need something transformed in me. And not just mm. fixed. A fix is a bad word here. I really like the word transformed. All negative emotion is an invitation to transformation. And if that's true then even the worst things you go through become an opportunity for you to become a more transformed individual, a wholehearted, healthy, living person that's not attached to other people treating you the way you think you should be treated or even the way that you would be fairly treated. Not about that. Hmm. I like it. I honestly, I need to kind of sit with it for a little bit because it... We've got all day, Kyle. Just enjoy Just have a sit, <laughs> meditate on this thing and come back to me. 
I, it's just uh, it's challenging to me because I I really see where they're coming from in regards to the idea of the negative emotion being an invitation into something more, into that more wholehearted lifestyle, especially when you're thinking about fear or when you're thinking about anger. It's like, okay, what's going on inside of me that is causing that reaction? Why am I experiencing it that way? And is there something there that that can be won into a deeper experience of freedom? Absolutely. My my one question is, is if it's an invitation, does that minimize especially if it's something that's being done to you, if you're a victim of something, does that minimize the experience or does that minimize the negative emotion to see it as an invitation into a deeper experience of life? I, that, that's some of my initial reaction to it was, okay, it depends on what it is, you know, if it's, but mm -hmm. even if it's somebody's doing you wrong, you can't fix that. Yeah. Right? And I don't know that it minimizes the transgression. I, I wouldn't go there because I, I think just saying, okay, I have this really volatile response to something someone's done. Is there a better way for me to live here? And again, not try to just do that all in your head, like do a head trip yeah. turning thing. I, I like that invitation to transformation. So how do I move inside of God and find out what's the root of this reaction? And you can find that and find freedom from that and it still doesn't minimize the transgression. The mm. transgression is still there. The trespass is still there. It, yeah. may, it may change how you relate to that person or what proximity you have, some of the stuff we talked about last week. So it's, it doesn't, I, to me, it doesn't minimize the damage other people cause. It just mm. puts a better place for us to resolve it. If they yeah. want to resolve it, great. I don't mind saying to somebody, hey, you just stepped on my toes there. Did yeah. you mean to do that? Um, but if they said, no, I didn't, I'm fine. You're just too sensitive. Or what? Then you just go, okay, then the only, the only recourse I have is to let something happen inside of me. Mm. That may change the way I live around them. That makes me also think back to, as, to like the ouch and the conversation about I experienced that as an ouch. Were, did you intend it that way? Or, you know, did I miss something? Was there something in my filter that viewed that as an ouch that it wasn't even authentic to the way that it that was going on or that the way that it was meant to be received? And so that's, I think that's really intriguing. And I think it's important that we often ignore that, right? We've learned nice is better yes. than honest. So we don't, and then we take it in and often not often, but sometimes we misinterpret what other people mm -hmm. intended to say. I, I love when people go, ooh, ouch, hold on a minute. And I'll go, what? Did you mean this? No, I didn't mean that. Thank you for helping me clarify. So I do think that conversation is an important one too. Yeah, I do. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm going to throw something at you this week because I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. I was actually in Arizona when I ran across this article. Okay. We'd just been meeting on uh, near a... A Native American reservation with some people who work there. And so I was kind of really tuned into the whole Native American thing. And this movie came out. Mm -hmm. Martin Scorsese, he's like, I gotta warn people. I'm not necessarily recommending the movie. The rec movie is long and in some places boring. I, <laughs> yeah. At least it was to me. I don't know what these rich old movie makers get to do when they get to indulge their passion <laughs> and then they just can't move the story along quite as well. It's a long movie. That's why I waited till it streamed. But I read an article back before I saw the movie, said this about the movie, the article's by Chris Zimmerman, I'll link it too. It says, containing, this movie contains all the elements of a classic Western. Martin Scorsese's latest movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, packs a punch, but it is also psychologically complex, 
and deeply spiritual and leaves the viewer pondering existential questions. And then he had four mm. questions. And when I read the four questions, I'm going, okay, I got to see this movie. Because I think all these questions are critically important. And even in light of some of the stuff we've been talking about this year with agreeing with God and the people I've been praying with and the delusion yeah. that's in the world, these questions are really part of that. And just to set the story for you haven't seen the movie, right, Kyle? I have it. No, yeah. it's you, you got to have some time. It's three and a half hours or three hours and 15 minutes. Cool. Yeah. But the stories of uh, the, the Osage uh, Native Americans who were moved mm -hmm. out of their fertile fields of they had lived in for hundreds of years, they get moved out by our um, policy to move Native Americans to land we don't want. And they got moved to some land in Oklahoma. Apologize to all you Oklahomans. Some of your land's okay, but some of it's kind of out there. Anyway, <laughs> they move them to this uh, desolate wilderness in Oklahoma where they discover oil on the property. Huh. So now the, the, this nation has become incredibly wealthy. And what the movie's about is how the white man moves into the area and begins to say, no, we can't let you have that. We have to take it. And because we couldn't move them again because of treaties and all that stuff, the, the, the way the movie, they, they intermarry with the Native American women, kill their husbands if they were married before, get their oil rights, and then the wife gets disposed of as well. I mean, it's murder and mayhem and greed. It's just, and it's a true story. This is not, this is not like a, oh let's gosh. make up something. Yeah, it's a true story. So it's it's a horrible part of our history, not not just not only moving the Native Americans around to the least desirable land. That's a big issue, right? Yeah. But the other part is when they had something really wonderful happen, and it wasn't the nation because the Congress didn't do this and the Army didn't do this, but greedy people from the East moved in and said, man, there's a lot of money to be had here, which is what swindlers do whenever there's a pocket of money somewhere, right? Whenever something's successful, people want to take what you have for themselves. So he asked these four existential questions, which are interesting. I think I'd love to probe these with you because you're a behavioral scientist kind of type dude. But <laughs> the first one is, why does guilt drive some people to remorse and others over the edge? And I think what he means by that is either doing more damage or even suicide. Some just, they were so, mm. felt so guilty, they committed suicide themselves for what they've been doing to others. Why does guilt drive some people to remorse? Like, oh man, I made a mistake, I should do something about it. But to other people, it just makes them go all the harder at hurting people around them. My inclination, my initial inclination, would be that the people who move towards remorse are actually experiencing guilt. So they're recognizing that there was a, a poor choice or an action that they did, a behavior, an external behavior that they did, that they can correct. That they regretted. That they regretted, yeah. that they can make amends for, they can, they can adjust accordingly. The other group, I think it moves into shame. That it doesn't just stay as guilt, that it moves into their identity. They as an individual are bad. They as an individual at the core of who they are is something wrong with them. And so then it moves into a deeper existential space that all of a sudden, okay, no, it's not just, it's not just a behavior that I can change quickly. My core identity is bad. And so now I'm, where's the hope? Where's the next step for me? If that's the final say on who I am as a person. Mm. 
Like my friend here was here last week, or here a couple of weeks ago, just said, no, no one in their company, one of their ethos is no one should be judged by their worst moment. Mm. No one wants to be, right? We've all had, yeah. we've all done things we regret, things that were, Absolutely. yeah, we're, we're flawed human beings. But the shame, when you take your identity in your failure, and Brene Brown really draws that distinction, doesn't she, between mm -hmm. guilt over here, which is I did something wrong, and now how do I manage that? Or, yeah. I'm I'm a wrong person. I'm my I'm bad yeah. at the heart. And yeah. That's good. Hey, so far so good. <laughs> Think about that with Sarah. Sarah growing up in the difficult family situation that she did that we've talked about in past yeah. podcasts. Um her therapist said to her one day, you know, out of all that, you chose goodness. You didn't mm -hmm. choose badness. You didn't choose to take your pain and put it on other people. Somehow the, yeah. she had a, her, her dad in her life was a model of goodness and she chose to be kind. And as she responded to her pain, it was, I want to make sure no one around me ever is in pain because of something I do, which helped her become a fawner on the other side yeah. of that. But uh, yeah, it's choosing goodness and realizing that, hey, just because bad stuff's happened to me doesn't mean I've got to be a bad person or that I'm a horrible person. An interesting, an interesting space with this question, like a follow-up question would be what leads people to become a lifelong victim versus to experience and honor the trauma, but then move through the trauma, to move on to it, to move into a different space where they don't allow that to be their the definition of who they are. That's an intriguing one. That one I still don't have clear answers for on the difference between the people that choose to recognize it, to work through it, and then to move to a different space, to to find some power, some strength, some courage in the midst of that versus the people who decide to stay in the victim mentality, to stay in the victim identity, and that they view that as serving them the best to be able to get through life. Mm. It's, maybe it comes back to some form of agency. If you have some mm. way to get help, you have hope for change. And if you can't yeah. find help that's helping you change, then maybe you just give into it. Mm. The victim mentality is a tough one, isn't it? Because you, you can really mm -hmm. commiserate and say, yeah, people really did wrong to you. They did. Yes. But do you now want to rise above that? Or do you want to rise out of that? And that's, that's the choice for healing, man. To me, that's redemption. That's what God offers us all. We're, we're not hemmed in by the, the, our darker moments or other things that people did to us that were dark. But that redemption allows us to find our identity in Him and find a new way to live that's more wholeheartedly. Second question was, what is the strange calculus of greed that causes it to catch up with even the most cautious, best-intentioned person? And that's what the, I mean, people come to this area and get involved in this because there's jobs and stuff there and then get caught in, I'm not just doing a job I'm getting paid for. I got to get some of this oil money for myself. And even the most cautious person, well-intentioned, ends up in the dark space. Couldn't you say that that also could potentially be reflected back towards the institution of Christianity? It doesn't in the movie, but yeah, I could. <laughs> I mean, that's like, I just think about that and I'm like, okay, how many people go into ministry, go in, plant churches, have the absolute best intentions, and then all of a sudden they start to encounter and experience and enjoy the benefits 
of power and financial wealth. And then it shifts and they're like, okay, I'm not going to lose control of this. I'm not going to change this. I'm going to build theology around this. I'm going to fill in the blank. See. And that's true of every every human institution, not just religious institutions, right? Correct. Be oh, absolutely. Political power. How many people go to Washington with a really good desire to make the country a better place then end up being a $500 billion uh, consultant to some corp company, whatever? And I mean, it, th that story, you go to Washington to get rich. You don't go to Washington yeah. to represent people anymore. And so it's to not serve. just true of religious institutions. I think it's true of it's true of people who do business together, who partners. How many stories I've heard, whether it's co-writing oh books or partners in business, where greed overtakes one of them and they're willing to rip it out of the hands and deny the involvement of other people to take everything for themselves. I mean, there's something in the human spirit and the research on cognitive dissonance is huge of how I can, if there's money at stake, how I can justify actions I know to be wrong, but I can justify them in this case because I can profit from it. Well, I just, I wonder how much of that is fueled by comparison. That as they're looking around and as they're seeing this movement taking place in other people's lives, whether it be in politics or in business or in religion or in, I mean, in education, whatever sphere of influence it's in, they're looking around and they're seeing, they're comparing the type of influence or the type of resource access, et cetera, that people are having. And then that's like, okay, well, how do I get a piece of this pie? How do I step into that? And that scarcity comparison mentality. Greed is really just, I deserve more than I have. And now I'm going to use surreptitious means to get it. And they say the worst thing that can happen to you is winning a lottery, that most lottery mm -hmm. winners are not happy five, six, eight years out because yeah. all their friends, they don't have any friends left, family. Everybody thought, you owe me, you owe me, you got this windfall and I need some of it. And if you don't share it with me, then you're whatever. And yeah, yeah. It, it destroys relationships, that same greed. But why, why the really cautious person who's well-intentioned, even they? get sucked into the greed thing. It's subtle though, right? I think that's the thing is it, with even the most calculating person, it's a subtle allure versus a, usually versus a major one-time decision type experience. You know, I, I think about Jess and her, her space when she was working through and had got offered a couple of major breakout roles that would have been extremely lucrative financially for her, not to mention to put her name on the map in an industry that she was wanting to make a name for herself in. Mm -hmm. And there was so many subtle things that like, I'm amazed. I I'm still blown away at her agency to say, no, my character is more important than that. That still blows me away to this day that that was part because I mean, she'd been in the industry. She'd aspired to be this since she was 10. She'd been in the industry for almost a decade. She had trained in college for four years to do this. And then when when the access point to fulfilling that dream was presented to her, it was a subtle compromise of her character. And is it like, is it worth giving up that that small piece of your character? in order to be able to live out this fulfillment, this dream, this life aspiration that you've been working almost 15 years to be able to achieve.
and how many others are going to do it. Oh, absolutely. In Without any pause. Yeah. No pause at all. Right. Yeah, that's what's sad. The, the human ability, our capacity to justify behavior, if it profits us, whether it's money or power or influence or whatever, it's, it's incredible how easily we jump over that line and how much affirmation you get once you've jumped over that line. Because then all the yes. sycophants who also want what your notoriety, fame, money, whatever, whatever's bringing you, all kinds of people that will come around you who want to ingratiate themselves to you because you can be their cash cow. And Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's so sad. And maybe that goes to the third one. What is the power of a lie that can blind a person to a truth staring them in the face? Mm. And that's in the movie, it's people, again, who come there who, who realize, man, there's, there's stuff going on here that I would never condone anywhere else. But now when I hear it in the context that benefits me, I'm going to believe the lie. I'm going to, mm. I mean, I sharing some of the recent story I've been through, I yeah. think vengeance and fear are a real part of how delusion happens. I, I get something addressed to me that e it may not be true, but it comforts me. So I'm going to grab it yeah. anyway, or at least yeah. positions me better than I'm positioned now. So lies are, or, or I just need revenge on somebody. I rewatched Coach Carter the other day. And this really makes me think of that. Like the, the scene that pops into my mind is when they are deciding whether or not they're going to end the lockout. And he is, he is challenging that he's arguing that he's saying that, look, this is, these are the stats. These are the numbers. This is the belief. And by us, by you ending this lockout, it's saying it's believing the lie that it's okay for less than 50% of our students to graduate, that it's okay for, for black African-Americans in this community to be incarcerated, that it's okay for them to be killed, that that's, that, that is socially acceptable, that that's the norm and that that's okay. And there's this lie that's staring them right in the face. And yet it's like, what is, what is the cost to challenge that lie? What is the impact? If you actually do align yourself with the truth, what is that, what kind of impact is that going to have with you and on you and on the people around you? Yeah. That can always be painful. And if, if, if our whole bent is avoid pain at all costs, please avoid pain, then yeah, you're going to fall into the delusion. Even if in the beginning, you know, it's a delusion, Yeah. but it comforts me now. And then at some point when you're challenged later, you're going to defend the illusion because you're now embarrassed you got caught in it. So then you yeah. double down on it and everybody around it. There's a crowd mentality that goes on with this herd mentality yes. that, that gives the delusion real light and um, life and power. And now we're all getting rich and we're all doing it. And so-and-so I'm no better than that guy or this guy. And so you just justify and justify. And that's what's, that's what's hard about watching this movie and so much of human nature over history is the things that we can justify to ourselves. And I, I, I come away from a movie like that going, I don't think I'm immune from those things. I think yeah. I've got to say in my heart, man, if I'm not having my eye on that, I'm probably going to fall victim to it. Yeah. Well, then on top of that, I feel like this is when the enemy likes to step in with the reinforcement of accusation. Right. Like, OK, you have compromised yourself. You have compromised your honor, your pride, your dignity, your humanity. And so now you need to just stay on this road. You you can't get it back. You can't you can't 
move in a different direction or decide to go against the stream because you've been flowing with the stream for so long that now your hands are dirty and now you're not you can't get out of it you can't get your hands clean anymore and just that that awful accusation of you've already stepped down this road and so now you're committed to this road and you can't get off it yeah you're already invested in in the lie and to me yeah. for sarah to turn around in that whole five week period of all that she did to move out, to secure a place apart from me, to cut the ties so that I wouldn't have communication with her. And for yeah. her to, within five weeks to go, I might've made a mistake here. I may want to mm. dip my toe back in that. Cause I think the normal human nature thing is, man, I've gone too far now. There's no way back. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things I was saying to her when I had a chance was, look, whatever's happened here is not too far. It's it's not a bridge too far. We we can find a way back if you want to, and that's an important thing to hold out to people who are in delusion. Because I do think the tendency is to maintain the lie. And you, you brought up the enemy earlier. I just as we were reading through Revelation this year, Sarah and I, so much at the end of the age where God's really down on lying and deceiving that that's that's the nature of the kingdom of darkness is lies, yeah. deceits, and delusions. And the kingdom of light, yes, it's honesty and truth. And yes, it is costly to live in the truth. It is, but it's yeah. also liberating to live in the truth. But how much God detests lying and how mm. easily we humans do that and cooperate with the enemy to foment darkness in the world. Just like in this movie, how easy you just people go along because there's something to profit from it. That turn, that turn upstream, that turn against the grain, that turn away from what you've been doing or what you've bought into, it's awkward. It's embarrassing. It's at times even like borderline humiliating because it's like how there is going to have to be some significant acknowledgement of I bought into this. I was duped. I did succumb to this. I did agree with this. I did choose this. And, and part of it, part of being able to make that turn is owning that process and owning the fact that that was a reality in that season that you were living. And that's hard. That's really hard. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to be able to step in that direction and to openly admit that, to acknowledge that and own it. Yeah, and that's there's a lot of power there, right? It, yes. We can finally do it and say, "Yes, I got to speak what's true, even if I've got to admit that I was deceived or cooperated with it or whatever." And that fear of embarrassment, that that whole thing you talk about, that's because we really do shame people like that. Yes. And if we could provide a softer landing place for people to back out of some area of darkness they may have got caught in. We can be gracious and generous enough, and then there's opportunity for people to turn around and make a place and say, gosh, I got this wrong. But you're right, it challenges everything in us to be able to have that kind yeah. of honesty and integrity in the heart. Well, and especially when, I'm, I'm sad to say that the, the Bride of Christ has not done this well. We have not been excellent examples of this, especially when people were are either caught in a, a road or come true, come clean about a road. Then they get sent into this like almost existential purgatory where they're not allowed leadership. They're restricted in their access to community. They need, you know, this laundry list of things that they need to do in order to be able to rejoin it. I mean, even yeah, 
Wayne, it started as young, at, like as early on as in training to be pastors. Literally, I was when I was working in my first counseling placement, it was at, in a it was in a counseling agency that provided services to a Christian seminary. And I would get all the clients that broke the code of conduct and came clean about it. The people that owned, yes, this is something that I did. Yes, this is a decision I made. Yes, I broke the, the student code of conduct. So then they were stripped of their leadership and they were required to see me as a therapist for an X period of time in order to meet their requirements of their duty. I mean, it started off in their training mm. as a as a aspiring pastor or future ministry provider. So you just learned that admitting the truth is too costly to bear. Yes. There, there's a game take you being out. played here. Keep playing the game. Keep your head down. Keep moving through it instead of, and here, here's where I think where people change and grow is when you can step mm -hmm. out of the delusion you're under. You can step out of the game that's being played and saying, I can't not deny what my eyes see anymore. I can't keep yeah. justifying this to get along anymore. Yeah. And that's, that can be very lonely. For sure. That's the red pill stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Most yes. people are enjoying the blue pill stuff. And <laughs> yes. yeah, just well, why can't I just enjoy that too? And I but I think the unrelenting passion for what's true, to be lovers of the truth, even if the truth is going to cost me, challenge me, embarrass me, to be so passionate, that's that's the people I really gravitate to. They have an mm. unrelenting passion for what's true. And they're not going to play the game, even if everybody else around them is. But that's kind of, I get that email a lot from people listening to this podcast. So I like saying now and then to the remind, you're not alone. It's a great yeah. choice to say, all what matters is what's true. It doesn't matter if it makes me feel good, if it makes my life easier, is it true or not? And if it's true, then that's what I, I'm going to go down that road. And boy, that takes. That takes some Jesus space. That takes being in yeah. him in a way that says, I can trust him with what's true, and I can trust the outcome of me following that truth, even if it costs me friends and money. And, yeah. and we see that with so much in the, in the Bible, right? The Bible does not mm. hide these very things we're talking about, the flaws in people that were held up as icons of faith. You've got... Abraham lying about his wife, Sarah, because he's afraid he gives in to fear for her, doesn't trust God to protect. You got David, man after God's own heart, who ends up cheating and lying and doing murder and all. I mean, just, it's incredible that the Bible not only says, hey, it's the good people that God spends time with. No, it's the yeah. honest people that God spends time with. It's the honest people that are willing to take a look inside. The last one is this, and kind of ties them all together, is how is it that when something seems to be a blessing can turn out to be a curse, that a stroke mm -hmm. of good fortune sometimes spell the worst of fates? And that's with this Native American tribe, it's, man, we've got oil, we've got riches, we've got money, but then we were murdered and plundered and used and exploited because people wanted to take that money. Yeah. How often is good fortune a cause for other people's jealousy, other people's mm. greed, other people, you just go right down the list. Uh, man, for some of the stuff yeah. we've been talking about there, I go back to when, when the shack was just a little book that didn't count for much, everybody around it was different. 
And then when it mm-hmm. got to be on the New York Times bestseller list and there was money and there was sycophants coming to the table and agents and lawyers and I want what you have and oh my gosh, it turned into a mess. And I and in the early days there was that Thank you, Gene Peterson wrote on the cover of a book. You know, you, it's a classic. This is this could be like Pilgrim's Progress or whatever. And I think that the the amount of yuck that surrounded the publishing of that book later really hindered the long-term impact of that book in a mm. spiritual way. I don't know it's, you know, can chart it out in some kind of material way, but I do yeah. think it's still a beautiful story. I love the story. I love what it's helped with people. I think it's a fabulous story. I think it was produced out of great fellowship and friendship and light and life. And mm-hmm. then when the dynamics of it became larger than a scale that people knew how to deal with, and it became a target, this good fortune. I remember yeah. I remember one lawyer saying, wow, this is a new thing among the Good Samaritan. Do somebody a good deed and get your head cut off. And it's going, <laughs> yeah, that does feel like that at times because yeah. our world rewards the dishonest. Would you say that? Again, it, it depends on what you categorize as a reward. Uh, financial gain, maybe, power, maybe. I mean, I, I just, I, I also think that prosperity attracts toxicity. So when somebody has good fortune, when somebody does step into something that is giving wholeheartedly out to the world that people are drawn to naturally, I think it attracts toxicity. I think it draws that in because people are wanting to take advantage of it. They're wanting to capitalize it. They're wanting to monetize it. They're wanting to squeeze it for everything they can get out of it because they come in and they're like, okay, I I don't have a conscience. So I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be able to make the most out of this for myself. And, or I've killed my conscience to the point that I don't have any feeling in that regard. And and so I think that that's one of the big challenges is that when we're navigating this and we're working through this, good fortune, prosperity, it, it has this allure. It has this ability to... To twist and then, and that's the hard thing is because then it also can cause us to doubt or to challenge gifts, right? Like, I mean, how many times in the process of the writing of the shack and then the aftermath of it did you say was it actually worth? Did did you genuinely question was it worth doing this? I mean, was it was the cost of the aftermath cost was it worth it? Yeah, and it's sad you even have to ask the question, but yeah, have I? Sure, I have, and. Because the cost, not just monetarily, the cost in friendship, the cost in community, yes. the cost in something that was beautiful that now becomes tainted a bit. And you see the same thing when a, you know, a, a woman singer, and this is probably what you know Jess had to deal with going the acting thing. When a woman singer gets tarted up more and more and more because the the whole sexuality thing is what we're selling, and yes. authors use it on their Facebook pages, and you know, just the, where you heighten the allure of sexuality to use it to advance ministry or to advance sales of books or recordings or whatever. And it's just, I don't know why it doesn't make other people queasy. Yeah. You know, it does me. I just go, it cheapens everything or like a, like an app on my phone that was great when somebody designed it and then someone else bought it. And now they're going to maximize the revenue. I don't mind people making money off of something, 
But you can tell when something's making a fair return and somebody is maximizing every square inch of your eye space to run ads, to do things or charge you not to run ads. And you just go, wow, yes. what have we done to the world we live in? It's it's everybody's grabbing their own. And I guess that's part of what, well, if everybody else is doing it, I've got to do it too to keep up. Yeah. And we're, we're kind of on that cycle of our, of our world where everybody's doing it to keep up and who wants to live in the kind of world that produces? Because it always rewards a very small sliver. Anything in the entertainment publishing world re rewards a very small sliver of people at the expense of the multitudes of people. Well, I, I, I really think that that is the genuine question that our nation is facing right now. Because now we are in a, we are in the, we're in the space now where capitalism in its all of its glory and darkness has been really manifesting itself for a few generations now. And we're seeing now we're reaping the repercussions of those generations and the the dark side of capitalism where it's I I will do because if I sear off my if I sear off my conscience. I can go after those things and I can do the things that are required in order to meet X amount of gain or to meet X amount of prosperity financially or gain power. And yet as, as a result, I mean, how, how many generations of that type of mentality and that becoming more of the predominant space in society can a culture actually, actually survive. And I think that's what we're facing right now. <laughs> I think that is too. But the, the interest in these questions for me is not, look what our society is doing, because all this is, I mean, this was done like a hundred some odd years ago. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's even worse today. That That's, yes, yeah, it's even worse. Yeah. But when I, when I read questions like these, it always goes to my heart. I don't want to be in that world. So how yeah. does guilt, when I have it, how does it drive me? to a better mm -hmm. place of remorse and regret and change and repentance and whatever. And where yeah. does where where does greed infect my heart and get me to justify stuff that I wouldn't have said yes to if you'd asked me apart from all that money you were throwing at yeah. me? Or what is yeah. the power of a lie that if I'm not benefiting from the lie do I really care? I I think all of that goes this is what makes me hunger so much for the redemption that is in Christ. Because it's not just be a Christian and follow the rules. It's let me change your heart so you don't live in the kingdom of darkness. You get to live in the kingdom of light. And that is so worth it. Even if you pay a price for it, it's so much worth it to live wholehearted in a world, seeing what's true, not grabbing for what's not yours, being kind to people. That's just a better way to live. And yeah. maybe it's a losing fight in culture as a whole. I seem to indicate that it will be until the return of the king. But yeah. in the meantime, I can look at this stuff in my own heart and say that 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 scripture, which I think if you're not in a performance-based mode, but search my heart, oh God, see if there be anything mm. in me. I I think if that's a performative, I'm a bad, horrible person, that's not a great prayer. But it's a prayer mm. of honesty to God saying, Man, I want to keep my heart true to you, and I realize the potential for my own self-delusion. So would you, Father, keep inviting me into the space of your goodness? Yeah, it makes me think of that, of a book project that we were working on, and there was an idea, there was an imagery in that book project that we were exploring 
about being a doorway, uh, a doorway for the kingdom of God to move into the world. Mm. And I think the more that God untangles our hearts, the more that capacity of him opening that doorway even wider into the world to allow that not only to saturate our own lives, but then to flow out into the world around us in, in the spaces that we live in and the people that we live alongside of becomes more of a reality. It is to see your life as a door. And there's the reward, right? The reward is not in your bank account necessarily. It's not not where you live. It's not all the financial. It's the doorway is, man, I got to help someone else see into the reality of God's light and life. Thank you for traveling with us today on The God Journey. You can join this conversation by visiting thegodjourney.com. 